You are listening to the Intentionally International Podcast. I am the Reverend Matthew Lafferty. And I am the Reverend Anitra Kitts. We are creators of this podcast, which explores the unique challenges and gifts of English-speaking international congregations in non-English-speaking countries. This is the third and final episode in our three-part series with the Reverend David B. Smith. David recently conducted a survey on ministry with children and youth in English-speaking international congregations in Europe and in Asia. If you've not heard the first two episodes, you are encouraged to pause this episode and listen to the previous ones before continuing in our series. I am the Reverend Anitra Kitts. I am an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, and I am a freelance writer and occasional preacher in Munich, Germany. I am the Reverend Matthew Lafferty. I'm a Methodist pastor serving as the director of the Methodist Ecumenical Office Rome and as the Methodist representative to the Holy See. Listen now as we continue our conversation with David on the topic of ministry with children and youth in English-speaking international congregations. I know from colleagues in my own experience that sometimes ministry with children and youth is almost described as the clash of civilizations on a Sunday because the expectations around learning, the expectations around how does one interact in a classroom with others, what is so-called appropriate behavior for church are at times so varied that those who come from, from cultures where the expectation is one of obedience and kind of more timid behavior and you know full compliance at all times and order and structure really really struggle when anything's deviated from that mm-hmm. um, when there's any deviation from that and of course there are other cultures that have important and good val- cultural values that mm-hmm. are completely different from that i wonder how we have those conversations sure. in our congregations and and i think that you raise a uh, an important point, um, because I think a lot of these, the cultural engagement questions often center around the worship life. And in some ways, I think that that is because it's sort of the low-hanging fruit uh, of this discussion. Because it's, it is, I, th- I think one could say, and this is again anecdotal, but I think I could prelimin- in a preliminary way say that in general, uh, the, the rearing of children in the faith has always been a, a touchy topic. Uh, it has always been, a, even within cultures, uh, it is complicated as to how we engage in that discussion. And so I think that uh, many people, even if they haven't put words to it as you have, have recognized that this challenge may be especially present in questions around how do we shape uh, the lives of our young people. And an additional question to this is not only how do parents want the church to support their work raising their children, but also what does that discussion mean for the volunteers, for the teachers who, you know, oftentimes, you know, we, we have this expectation that they might be, have had training in cultural competency from university or whatever. And in truth, uh, I, I think one could say that that would be a rarity at the very least cannot be assumed. And even with all the cultural competence training that you can have, and I've had a lot of it, I bumble through things all the time. You can be more forgiving when you're, I think, when folks are engaging um, between adults. But when you 
raise this question of cultural competency as it is involved in youth ministry and as you are involved in shaping the lives of young minds and entering into an intimate relationship with families who are sort of the nexus of faith formation and of life, it adds an, a, an additional layer. And I don't know that we have engaged in that. And again, I hope that uh, so if somebody listens to that and hears it and says, oh, but I have an exception to that rule, I would love to hear about it. Um, but I think that uh, that you're pointing to something that, that needs more reflection and and that when we do engage in that reflection, we should expect it to be complicated and somewhat painful. Um, and David, maybe this is a more open-ended question. What, what are the few other things that you found important from the survey and the mm-hmm. data that came from it? If, if you can share maybe briefly some of those. And there are so many things that are, that are fascinating that once you, once you start delving into questions about resources about how do we think about questions what are the outcomes we're looking for and formation and discipleship for for young people how do we do that in a congregation that's maybe partially transient and partially not transient how do you do that with volunteers who are committed and sometimes committed to something that doesn't work as well as it should but it's what they know and there's no other staff to help them overcome that and a lack of resources and these kinds of things maybe if there are a few other things that from the survey that would be interesting for people to know or to hear certainly well i will say uh first of all building on what we we have already discussed um with regard to sort of culturally sensitive engagement on these issues some of the categories we used in the survey are by nature Western categories themselves. So I want to be aware of that. And to some extent that had to, to be because I'm writing a thesis in a Western uh, theological faculty. So uh, there, there was some, some outside uh, expectations expo- uh, imposed there. And with that, one of the questions that I asked in the discussion was, do and this is a, a an important question in youth ministry, especially in the United States. Uh, I'm not the first to ask it. Ask it. Essentially, in what ways or to what extent do youth engage youth and children engage in leadership in the life of the church? Which goes back to what we were discussing with what cultural expectations are there around behavior of children in relation to adults and in the congregation. And I was surprised to see, however, that most of the respondents suggested that there was fairly high engagement, that there were strong expectations on young people. Maybe they're not uh, doing like the youth elder thing like we have in the United States and the PCUSA where, you know, youth are sitting on the, the leadership body of the church, but youth are taking, uh, expected to take active roles in the life of the congregation in many contexts. And I thought that was particularly instructive because I don't know if that can be said of congregational life more broadly outside of this specific uh, kind of network. I don't have much more information as to what that looks like, um, but in a preliminary way, there, there, is, there does seem to be, at least in the self-selecting group that chose to participate in this survey, a considerable engagement not only of the congregation with youth, but also of the youth in the congregation, uh, which is a sign of that reciprocal relationship is often a sign of sort of healthy engagement. 
on these issues. One other just thing, and then I can get to some specific uh, deductions made. We also asked um, congregations to identify how they organize their youth groups by age. And so especially in sort of professionalized youth work and educational circles, the life cycle perspective, as it's often called, has a significant impact on how we understand faith formation of youth, right? You you want age-specific programming simply because people are at different phases of their development. But the question I was interested in is, okay, so what what are the age parameters or do those age parameters exist? In the congregation surveyed, it was also interesting to see that many of them fit quite well with sort of the dominant um, model of organizing things along with the educational system and of saying, okay, so while the specific ages may have varied considerably, in general, children, uh, young children, and then children, young adult, uh, early adolescents and adolescents need different approaches to programming. Now, this was somewhat uh, shaped by the size of the congregation, right? So obviously a congregation who has six children as opposed to 60 uh, will approach things differently and would have to, to be faithful to their context. But it was just interesting to see that there is sort of a general awareness, even if it might not be identified, that age-specific programming is important. So then asking the question, how do we do age-specific programming that is culturally sensitive and that is actually relevant to the complex and unique realities that we are facing? Because, as we have already discussed, a denominational curriculum from a country to which many of the members, perhaps even the majority, may not have even been, is not going to to achieve those goals. So all of that builds on to these questions. I think that a lot of the goals of these youth ministries that were identified by the leaders both identify the situation as it is, but also point toward what they hope it could be. So, which is a healthy thing, actually. It's actually a healthy thing to say, oh, our youth ministry or our children's ministry is good in A, B, C, and D, but I would do anything if we could change this. Because if you you thought you were doing everything right, you've probably stagnated at some point. Um, And so some of the words that really came up, that popped up in responses were a desire for children to know and, and to feel that they were safe, which is especially important in an international context where inclusion that's often used for specific realities in in the U.S. means something very different. A a child who, for example, in Germany, I'll just speak from this context, uh, who goes to a German school all day and is maybe learning German but is kind of picked on for not really being able to speak well, um, goes to, to, to the American Protestant Church and can speak in their first language or their, their second more prominent language and feel a sense of safety and feel a, a linguistic safety um, that is often not considered in discourses about inclusion and safety uh, in the U.S., for example. Connected to that safety piece, acceptance, belonging, love, and fellowship were all key words that could sort of be seen in many of the, the written responses and in the interview conversations. And so I think this, this question of belonging is especially significant with international uh, church ministry. I think it goes far beyond youth ministry and children's ministry and perhaps shapes 
the entire life of the church. What does it mean to belong in a place where you can't really lay claim to many identity markers of belonging? What does it mean to talk about home? What does it mean to talk about, you know, we hear language about my spiritual home, this and that. What does that mean in a congregation where everything uh, that you identified with home has now shifted or is now in a distant memory or has been taken from you in some way? Obviously, there are different experiences for different cohorts. So, so what does belonging mean, I think, is a question that is being asked over and over again in these contexts and is yet and perhaps will always remain ultimately unanswered in its entirety. As I was saying at the top of the interview, there's this kind of work to see I'm not alone in this struggle, that we're not, my congregation's not unique. I, on one hand, I want to say we're always unique. And that's, and that's the line I think many congregations will say, well, we're unique. Um, in some ways, I find great comfort in other people are struggling with this. And, and it energizes me to want to say, how can we, across these lines of identity, still find ways we can support and encourage each other now that we know we're not in this by ourselves, that there's, there's shared experience um, and models that we can um, draw upon that may need to be adapted for our unique specific situation, but, but that there, there are issues that cut across all of these identity markers that we, as English-speaking international congregations, should be engaged in to, to, be, um, to create healthy ministry opportunities for children and youth and, and formation programs. And an observation I, I, I would end with in this, uh, in our conversation, which we've not talked about whatsoever, but is the, the, the role that immigrants have in preserving traditions of, of old that are traditions of old and maybe no longer traditions or ways of speaking. I look back to my, my experience in seminary and I was out on the East coast in Connecticut in a place that had a, a large Italian immigrant population that still had Italian immigrants coming even in the 21st century. And it was very interesting. The, the local university did a study of the Italian spoke most widely spoken and still in this little Italy neighborhood. And it's the language that, that um, w- was, was spoken, you know, in the 1950s uh, when the last huge, large, huge wave of immigration happened um, before the U.S. changed its laws in the 1960s around immigration and the kind of preservation of ways of doing and being that weren't always clear why we do this, or but it's that's our identity. And kind of reflecting back in, um, into our experience here working, and my experience here working with immigrants and also having that same, that's a question that's still unresolved for me. How does all of that stuff um, factor in to, to things around. Um... Yeah. And that, uh, and I think also to some of your other just ending points um, uh, around the discussion of what, what does immigration do to culture? How does that, um, it, I think really it might be helpful just to, as a suggestion, bridging this discussion with that of sort of academic discussions of cultural hybridity, right. Um, which is sort of the, the going term, which has a lot of connotations, but I, I think specifically related here is sort of a, an observation that I think we could all assent to having been in different contexts, that culture 
is often not defined when it is existing within itself. But when that culture, and culture is always interactive, right? There is no pure culture. This is sort of the main basis of the hybridity model. But when you look at immigration, hybridity becomes all the more clear. You start to see that, okay, so you mentioned the, the group of the Little Italy in the, in the community where you, you studied. For many people, one might imagine if you were to go do anthropological research there, that their Italian identity had become more important for them after they left Italy than it ever was in Italy. Uh, and, and I can even speak to that from anecdotally from my own experience. I have, how many times have I said, well, as an American, as someone from the United States, I never talked like that before, you know, but I, I have had to sort of identify with my culture in ways that I did not when I was living within it. And so I think that that, uh, we would have to think, possibly think through how, how exactly that is at play in congregational life. But specifically for newer immigrant populations, more recent immigrant populations who are saying, okay, maybe we're going to use English as a common denominator to preserve, but because maybe we speak different dialects of the same language or different tribal languages, so on. But we do have at least a common stream, a red thread, as the Germans really like to emphasize, that unites us together. And so we're going to do church around that thread and use English to help us get to it. And, and, and that, I think, is all part of this cultural hybridity discourse that is really being completely reshaped right now, because, especially in Europe, because of the current migration age um, and because of the diasporas, frankly, that many people are experiencing. Um, and then I guess the final thing that I, I could see developed more, the only, the biggest practical suggestion I have out of all of this is exactly what you said. We need to be in conversation on this, even with people who are in some ways outsiders, you know, or at least newbies uh, to this discussion like myself, but who bring other experiences to the table. Because as I've mentioned to you before, as we've, I think, uh, talked about before, uh, this project will not produce a guideline for creating a curriculum that is relevant to churches. I think one of the biggest conclusions that we can draw from this research is that there won't be a curricular plan, an approach, a ministry model that is applicable across these extremely diverse networks uh, this, of, of international congregations, even in Europe, but especially uh, more broadly. Um, so I think the, the main practical thing for people who are engaged in this, adult leaders, young adult leaders, youth and children, possibly even themselves, um, how do we actually talk to one another and have sort of a generative, creative conversation that uses our own context to be instructive to others and also to learn from others? We call that an ecumenism, receptive ecumenism, right? What do I receive from another church? Well, maybe... We could do that on a more grassroots level and say, well, what can my international congregation receive from my sibling congregation in a different context with a different demographic, so on, but, but still sharing the gospel in, in their own unique way. This is the final episode in our three-part series with the Reverend David B. Smith on his survey results on ministry with children and youth and English-speaking international congregations in Europe and in Asia. 
Continue listening to our podcast, Intentionally International, by subscribing to it wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm the Reverend Anitra Kitts, and with the Reverend Matthew Lafferty, we create this podcast.